the end of October, the United Nations has a designated World Cities Day in which they ask the international community to promote discussion and exploration on the topic of the urban environment. For 2019, the theme selected by the UN was Changing the World, Innovations and Better Life for Future Generations. One of the primary goals was to highlight public attention on innovations in mobility, autonomous and electric vehicles, and the use of artificial intelligence, augmented and virtual reality, and the Internet of Things in urban planning. In considering the World Cities Day theme, we're reminded of a remark by English novelist H.G. Wells, Human history, in essence, is the history of ideas. Welcome to If When, Jacob's series of interviews exploring the world of emerging technologies. I'm Paul Teese, your host, and in this episode of If When, we will be discussing the future of cities with Professor Michael Keith, co-director of the Oxford University Program for the Future of Cities, and Brian Burkhardt, the Global Technology Leader, Advanced Mobility Systems at Jacobs. Professor Michael Keith is director of the Center of Migration, Policy, and Society at the University of Oxford, coordinator of the Urban Transformations Portfolio of Investments and Research on Cities, co-director of the Oxford University Future of Cities Network, and the director of the Peak Urban Research Program, a global network of cities research in China, India, Colombia, and South Africa. His research focuses on migration-related processes of urban change. A registered professional engineer with 30 years of experience as an electrical engineer, Brian Burkhardt is a global technology leader advanced mobility systems at Jacobs. In this role, he leads its communities of practice in intelligent transportation systems, road use charging systems, and automated connected and electric vehicles. He also recently served as an appointed panel member for a transportation research board analysis on the use of dedicated highway lanes for connected and automated vehicles. Thank you, Michael and Brian, for joining me today. To begin, I'd like to ask Michael, how would you describe the benefits of future city design to the general public? Well, Paul, I think the first thing we need to do is to understand that design has to both learn from the history, the experiences, the mistakes, and those things that have worked in the 20th century, but actually rethink them to address the needs of the cities of the 21st. To do this, I think we need some core principles. Bruno Latour has suggested there might be five of these that we might think through. The first thing we need to remember is that urban design never begins from scratch. We don't actually create something from a tabula rasa, ex nihilo, from a blank sheet. We always begin from what's given to us. The second is we need to do this with humility. The 20th century was characterized by some extraordinary acts of hubris in terms of major programs, grand projet, that went wrong. We need to think about that with a degree of humility, which means thirdly, we need to attend to detail. Both the macro and the micro scale of design is actually incredibly important in thinking about futures. And that means fourthly, that design always has meaning. We need to understand the cultures of cities in which these changes are taking place, which means fifthly and finally, that what we do always, it invokes, it involves, it produces an ethical question as well as a technical question. What that means is we need to have to think about in whose image the city is being reinvented or redesigned. And I think if we actually observe these principles, then the power of technology is extraordinary. And the combination of technological opportunity and good governance means that they can become the servants of urban populations that aspire to follow the Athenian injunction, the intergenerational injunction to leave cities better when you leave the earth than when you arrive at the city to think about the generations that are yet to come in the city. And so there is extraordinary potential, but it has to be thought of with a degree of caution. 
Brian, how would you describe the benefits of future city design to the general public? Ideally, future city design will aspire to tackle today's challenges while also trying to hedge bets on what might happen in the future. And that's the challenging part that we work with our clients on. For example, global warming is seen as a real threat. And so we're seeing cities that are being designed more resilient and to handle things like sea level rise. But when it comes to transportation, some of the things that we're looking at is, well, rather than building new roads and what we've done traditionally and over the past hundred or so years with the advent of shared autonomous vehicles and even things like Uber and Lyft, they have a particular impact to how we are using our roadways. Micro-mobility changes such as e-scooters and bicycles, this is all changing the fabric of our cities and it lends us to reconsider how we use our land all the way down to capital expenditures. And this is essentially what is on the minds of a lot of our practitioners of cities. The UN Social Development Network is projecting by 2030 that more than 60% of the world's population is projected to live in cities. And their World Cities Report, they're saying by that same year, by 2030, there'll be 706 cities around the globe that will have at least 1 million residents with 43 mega cities, which is 10 or more million people. Most of the fastest growing cities are in Asia and Africa. And you're starting to see all kinds of very interesting investment, lots of investment, particularly in Singapore, Tokyo, New York, and London. My question for you, Michael, is with all that activity going on, what examples of future city development do you see are especially illustrative of the possibilities in this space? There is diversity. You just invoke the degree of geographical diversity and the extent to which the future of Tokyo or Singapore will look the same as somewhere like Nairobi or Lagos is something we need to think carefully about. I think if we're thinking primarily about the interface between technological innovation and urban form, then I think it might be helpful to think in a, in a way in about three different dimensions that will drive these changes that are, in a sense, tech down a sense of the grassroots up and a sense of path dependency of geography. What I mean by those in turn, when we think about the changes in the technologies that range from how we inhabit the city, how we govern it, how we make living in the city plausible, to the way we move through it and the kind of transport changes, the 21st century will look very different. There's extraordinary opportunities. If I just take one area, if you think about public health, the opportunity to combine extraordinary data sources that are aggregated in new biobanks with mobility data, personal data, welfare data, offers extraordinary potential to think about what it means to create a healthy city very differently in the next 10, 15 years to the way we have done in the past. If you just take examples from the US or even in the UK, where you've got about 500,000 participants in the major UK biobank, you can actually produce different biomarkers across 34 different criteria for those 500,000 people. You map that onto GPS schemes and think about it in the context of mobility and housing and employment, and you begin to get an understanding of a complex system radically different from the way we've thought about public health and urban situations at the moment. That needs a top-down understanding of the capacity, the potential for data to make the city visible very differently. The kind of grassroots up, well, by that I mean innovations that come through both at a community level, but also tend to come from small companies, small private sector organizations, one or two people working 
in rooms on their own, innovations that may be customized, personalized. If you think about the mobility applications that emerge like Waze that comes out of Israel, ends up being bought up by Google. So there's an issue about the disruptive innovators that get bought up, but we may come back to that. But has extraordinary impacts on the ways in which we make the city visible. Or even various forms of citizen science that measure the markers of air quality or other measures of consumption of the city, the way we live in the city. All of these have a possibility of changing the way, again, the city is made livable for people on the ground, communicating with each other at a horizontal level rather than just from top down. But thirdly, most of that change you started with, those UN stats, you mentioned Africa and Asia, but they are broadly in the cities of the global south where the majority of living conditions of intense informality. There's great separation often between different sections of society. How we think about how technological changes in mobility can address that is also important. So even with sometimes sometimes called clumsy solutions, if you look at Medellin, in Colombia, one of the cities we work in, where you had extraordinary separation between the informal settlements in the barrios and the formally organized part of downtown Medellin that looks much like New York or London. One of the things they did was they used the cable car system, literally to join up those different parts of the city, to create mobility between the parts of the city, but also to use the nodes of the transport system to build education networks, welfare networks, health networks, So what started off as a tourist attraction became a way of trying to knit the city together through inventive ways of using mobility, not to undermine the power of what driverless vehicles will mean in the future, but there are different ways in which we move through the city, different ways we connect. I did a little bit of cross-research and I was looking at a report from the business school in Barcelona and they had a cities in motion index of the smartest cities in the world. And it was reported in Forbes magazine. And I cross-referenced that to the UN's World Cities Report from 2018 of the world's largest cities. And so of the top 10 smartest cities and the top 10 largest cities, only Tokyo was on both lists. And Tokyo was the only city of the top 10 largest cities that was in the top 50 smartest cities. Most of the large cities are in developing nations where they're going to be hit with, and they probably already are, huge masses of population and Mm -hmm. population growth, but they don't quite have the infrastructure or the financing yet to address the challenges. That's such a swell in population. I think that's right. That's, That's absolutely right. So it's just very interesting to see that. So that's going to become arguably a global challenge that we'll all have to deal with at some point. Brian, set the table a little bit, get your opinion. What do you see are some of the universal characteristics of a city of the future? I think a lot of people have an idea of what smart cities, cities of the future are. From a business and engineering perspective, you're dealing with clients and municipalities and and whatnot. Regardless of geography, what do you see are some of the universal characteristics And then conversely, what are some of the key areas of difference? Let's start off with the differences. I think the differences really get to governance, how governments procure and build their cities and how they're ruled seems to have a big impact on how quickly a city of the future can get built. I think we're finding quite honestly in the States, we're a bit bureaucratic and things take quite a long time and having to move projects through environmental clearances and the like. I think that's probably a big difference between cities. And as far as uniqueness, of course, I'm going to have to say transportation. 
everyone in all these cities are going to need to get someplace or go somewhere that we're seeing as the most common need. Michael brings up an interesting point. We have plenty of traditional and legacy modes of transportation that are going to always be part of the mix here, just because we're all curious and interested about connected autonomous vehicles really is not the answer to everything. For example, we just completed a project for North Central Texas, the Council of Governments that was looking at a new downtown circulator. We looked at everything from gondolas out to monorail for just something as short as a 1.6 mile oval loop. We settled upon a driverless articulated bus on an elevated structure. There's still many different types of solutions that can be had within transportation. Every city needs them, but there's not one answer that fits all. Michael, what would you say will be the greatest strains placed on cities within the next 10 years? I think it's interesting to start with that question of migration. In one sense, it is potentially the greatest strain. It's also the greatest opportunity in terms of thinking about certain kinds of futures. I mean, the challenge for the cities for the next 10 years is to, in the face of a climate change crisis, which Brian has already mentioned, that will be rolling up the street increasingly quickly in the face of political turbulence that we've seen globally and nationally in many parts of the world, and incredibly rapid economic transformation that we create massive questions about how we make our future cities sustainable. Sustainable economically, sustainable ecologically, sustainable socially. You're talking about a scale of movement where, I think you just mentioned some of the UN reports, where if you look five, six years ago, there was a report from the UN that in 2013 said that there were about a billion people on the move in that one year. And three in four of those were people moving from the countryside to the city, rather than just what people tend to talk about when they're thinking about migration, which is international. That's people moving from old rural societies to new configurations of urban life. Some people have argued this is the biggest movement of humanity that has ever been witnessed in this life cycle of civilization for the last three, four thousand years. So what that means is that migration is an opportunity in the sense that those people are productive, that they are productive, they have new ideas, they bring new ways of thinking, they bring new ways of working. So if we're going to try and bring together the economic, social and ecological dimensions of urban life, then in a sense, we have to work out how the cities will accommodate these new populations, but also how these new populations will manage in some way to combine the demands they need for the present with their obligations to future generations. Because what we can say is if you're looking at some of the cities at places like New York or London, most of the built environment that will be there in 20 years, 30 years, 50 years is already built. So some of those challenges of sustainability are about retrofitting what's there in terms of built environment about navigating ways through what is already there in terms of mobility in the city itself. But in the new cities, the ones that are emerging, the ones you invoked earlier on, there's an issue about how we create sustainable cities that are, for example, densely built rather than sprawling, that actually offer the opportunities to realize some of these technological opportunities in the most effective way for the benefit of the majority. So that means facing down some of the issues of social polarization, facing down the issues of climate change, but thinking about cities that can be flexible enough to adapt rapidly to the economic possibilities of those concentrations of labor and demand, because those people that come together in the city will bring their labor power, contributing to new economies. And that offers really exciting opportunities as well as challenges, opportunities like effectively avoiding some of the mistakes of the older cities. You know, cities where, for example, we pump water in the UK and many other cities of the world, we pump water through our toilet system of a quality that is potable, is drinkable, a complete waste in the face of the crisis of water. 
so how we think about water separation, how we think about actually treating scarce resources like water and energy differently. And new technologies offer easier ways to effectively jump some of the lock-ins that we see in, in cities that are structured by big drain pipes and big sanitation systems that are wasteful or large energy grids that are working on 19th century principles rather than 21st century opportunities for providing energy to people across these large concentrations. So in a way, migration is the greatest challenge, as you're suggesting, Paul, but it's also potentially creates a real opportunity in that sense. It seems like we're trying to deal with the fact that with advances in mobility and technology, like you're saying, larger numbers of humans are able to move across the globe like never before. And so we've got these built environments that are environmentally constrained because they were designed with yesteryear's needs in mind. And so just on a logistics basis, regardless of the political or cultural considerations that bringing in different populations may have or the kinds of effects, it's just the pure human logistics of being able to accommodate people and provide for them it seems that it might be really skewed more toward the emerging geographies, which are not as constrained with their infrastructure. You know, I'm making an assumption that they would have greater flexibility to build from scratch. And I kind of liken this to mobile devices across the globe, where you've got landscapes in Africa and whatnot, where people are coming online and they're not as constrained you can introduce new technology to them and they can get up to speed right away. Whereas with more established locations, there's a lot of retrofitting and things that have to take mm. place with the infrastructure. And it seems like that's the same case with built environments as well. We actually have to spend more on developed countries than maybe developing countries. I think that's partly true, Paul, if I can just butt in for a second. Is, is, sure. Take a city like Shenzhen in China. That if you go back to when Deng Xiaoping opened up the Chinese economy in 78, there were about 280,000 people scattered across a load of villages in Shenzhen, which is effectively spread as a special economic zone like toothpaste on top of Hong Kong. 40 years later, depending on how you measure the metropolitan region or the urban boundary, you know, you've got a city that is a mega city somewhere between 12 and 18 million people, depending on exactly how you draw the boundaries. That scale of growth, that people talked about Shenzhen speed. But it wasn't built entirely on a non-existent past. You had villages there that had one sort of property relations. It had one way of growing the city. The villages in the city in Shenzhen accommodate the populations in a certain kind of way alongside the more planned parts of the city. It's an extraordinarily flexible city because of the way it's governed. It's also the city that has a greater level of surveillance than pretty much any other city in the world, depending on how you measure it. There are different pluses and minuses to that equation. Mm -hmm. But it means that you have to understand it economically in terms of its relationship to Hong Kong, not least right now in terms of what's going on. But in terms of the opening up process in China economically and the, the liberalization of the economy in the Pearl River Delta. But also in terms of more productively, a, a population that has grown at such a rate that I don't think it's true now, but Shenzhen used to say that it had more PhDs in the city than the rest of China put together. That's partly to do with the offshoring of a lot of the, the tech industries from various parts of the world, not least in Silicon Valley. But it means there's an extraordinary inventiveness to the city, an extraordinary capacity to change rapidly. It's not a set of changes that is without problems ethically and otherwise, but it's a city that demonstrates a capacity to change, but it's a capacity to change in the shadow 
of its past and is constrained by, but also enabled by the economics of the present. This is one of your examples where you can see some really exciting things happening, but they're not without their challenges at the same time. So speaking of challenges, Brian, what would you say are some of the ways in which future city technology benefits public safety? I think Chicago, where they have gunshot detection, that's been deployed almost 15 years now in some of the more plighted neighborhoods. Obviously, there's equity perceptions there that are significant. There was a lot of talk about that when I was in Chicago and the fact that those were being deployed in areas that were poor. But they have helped as far as the triangulation and determination of the origin of gunshots is, is very helpful. And this type of technology is being deployed in cities. It is helpful in law enforcement in that regard. But I think some of the more challenging things are what we're experiencing here in California right now. We're having one of the largest evacuations in Northern California's history because of fires right now. I'm looking out my window here in San Francisco. It's very smoky right now. We have two counties without power. The public utilities had a great task in communicating. But things that you take for granted, like cellular technology, I mean, if we're using that as a means of communicating, and then all of a sudden we lose power to the towers, how does a smart city work with that? We're talking about something that's very reliant upon power and upon technology. If once you remove that and you have what we have here, we're back to human systems. And how can human systems work to the benefits of public safety? And that's what we're seeing here now. It's people creating safe stations. There's evacuation patrols going out there and getting people out of their homes. Yes, there's technology, but the right future city will also have operational standards that make people safe. Michael, next question is for you. What areas of future city development should municipalities focus on that are possibly being under-discussed or under-evaluated by most commentators? If it's not unhelpful, I almost want to come back to Brian's point to answer your question there, Paul, because I think one of the things it's worth pulling out is that in the context of public safety, the capacity to report quicker, in more detail, in real time and real geography at a micro scale reinforces what I was trying to say at the very top of the page about the balance between micro and macro, that mm. if you look at a lot of forms of epidemiology of disease or the distribution of certain crimes, not least in terms of violent crime, very often that the very, very micro is demonstrative of pattern in a way that is more easily addressed by various forms of policing and other law enforcement agencies that are under great stress. The ability to know what is happening rapidly, but also to move quickly in response to it, and to see pattern over time, offers kind of real opportunities. But then what that leads to is how we think about who is responsible for the doing of that. So, you know, when you think about other cities in the world, like Rio de Janeiro, that saw a frightening level of homicide in some of the favelas, there have been various attempts to pacify, in inverted commas, the favelas. But when you get situations where effectively a quasi-military force go in to pacify the favela, it produces pushback. It lasts a short while, but oddly enough, it ends up reproducing kind of intense division. And many of those forms of pacification in Brazil have worked for a short time and then blown back down the line. So when we're thinking about the areas of future city development that municipalities should focus on, I think the thing that is under-discussed is that the municipality is always in this situation where it needs to balance 
balance different demands from different interests at different times on different timescales and different geographies. This act of balancing is actually incredibly difficult. And good governance, in many ways, is frequently a kind of political acrobatic, trying to balance particularly what public goods are and private interests might be. And you can take an example like Toronto, where Alphabet has had a very high-profile piece of work where working through Sidewalk Lab tried to pilot a really interesting smart city program on the Toronto waterfront, which is, I think, largely driven by good intentions, has had extraordinary pushback from local community around how the data is aggregated, how the data Mm. is used, and Mm. how the smart city might work in a way that addresses that balance between Mm -hmm. private interests and public goods. Because on the one hand, any form of technology, particularly any form of database technology, needs to monetize at some point. And without monetization, you don't necessarily get certain kinds of innovation. But without the moment you begin to make data proprietary, then how one defines what is for the public good as opposed to the private interest becomes difficult. So this is difficult in different ways. If you look at liberal democratic states, if you look at the USA Mm -hmm. or Northern Europe, This plays out in one way. You look at the China model today, and it plays out in a very different way. How municipalities balance these different interests is, Mm -hmm. I think, really, really challenging when we think about the need to promote innovation on the one hand, to promote innovation in a way in which we can have transparency of data, because the new technologies demand an interaction between the people who produce data and the people who use Mm -hmm. data in a way that is potentially Mm -hmm. incredibly exciting but is always ethically challenging. And if you think that you can just produce the big dashboard in city halls through which the the, the smart city is going to be governed, that's that's just not going to work. I mean, that is kind of Chernobyl for the 21st century, if you think about those terms. So you need a system that is transparent to itself. It has legitimacy from the people producing data. But you also need to recognize that for the commercial sector to monetize something through innovation, there needs to be a way in which there is a return on investment, a return on time. Absolutely. And, and so how one kind of balances these interests, both for those people in the short term and those for the longer term, is deeply challenging, but quite exciting in, in some ways, but not again without some serious problems we need to think about. Just to jump on that, you know, I think there's some examples of where that's succeeded. Like in Sacramento, there was an interesting public-private partnership where a cellular carrier came in and said, we would like to get our new 5G small cell system distributed onto your infrastructure at a lower canopy level. So we're talking things like streetlights and uh, traffic signals. And the city said, well, what are we going to get with that? And they offered up a full traffic management system, an intelligent transportation system. But of course, this is the way that Carrier was able to essentially get data vacuums out there. That's how they make their money. And they're giving a little bit back to the city. They're also helping to complete the communications infrastructure. So it's interesting, you know, in that particular situation, they had a good balance of commercial need and city operational need. You know, we're seeing other places like Miami-Dade has a procurement out now for a smart county solution. And in that, they're inviting cost-neutral and neutral host carriers, which allows someone to come in and monetize that data. Of course, there's caveats to that. You know, that data has to be open to the public. We have to remove personal information, obviously. This is just the tip of the iceberg of innovative ways that we can bring these new technological solutions that are all based in data. Michael said at the top of the hour, this is really the gold of these cities will be how that data can be used 
and to create an environment where we get real-time information, but also have rich information that can inform how we're planning for the future. I think that's right. We use a lot of data analytics teams in some of the works we're doing internationally. And one of the challenges we have that follows on directly from Brown's point is that if you take something like telephone data, mobile phone data, there's extraordinarily rich data that's out there, but how one then negotiates access to that data, what the limits are, what is allowed to be personalized, where the GPS tracking is personalized, where it's tied to other variables. This is a subject of almost case-by-case negotiation that is frequently company-by-company, corporate-by-corporate, as much as it is nation-by-nation. So there's some kind of interesting dilemmas. Well, and it's interesting, too, because with the advent of things like GDPR and whatnot, you're starting to see, obviously, a real ramp down on privacy regulations. Now, obviously, Europe is leading the way in this regard. The United States may follow. It'll be interesting to see how companies and municipalities and these different partnerships navigate that landscape because there is so much data there are going to be actors who are able to leverage and take advantage of that. Trying to secure that is going to be mightily important, you know, and then with the advent of AI and machine learning and trying to feed the data sets so that we can train up our AIs for things like autonomous vehicles and smart bots and, and all of the rest. It's going to be a very interesting world, I think, in the next 10 years. Yeah, it's just certainly creating a new need for uh, new types of jobs. One of the things that municipal planning organizations, MPOs, are looking at now are sourcing uh, data scientists. And you never thought that a data scientist would be necessarily needed in that type of organization, but we're seeing more and more of that right now as a real need. Michael, this question for you, how should we frame expectations of what future city development can reasonably look like in the next decade? I think there are some simple points that follow on from things we've just been talking about in the conversation. I mean, the most obvious one that we've just effectively been talking about right now is that whatever happens will be uneven globally, massively different geographically. I mean, this is something that cautions us against overgeneralizing if you're an academic, but it also means that we need to think about work that is customized to particular cities, practically and commercially. One advantage of this is that we will have a series of natural experiments, that different things happening in different cities at different times, different ways of addressing our problems. And I think there is a real capacity to learn if we so choose. And so how we think about creating networks that link up cities in forms of intercity learning will be kind of one of the markers of the next decade, I think. And I think there are some promising signs in that regard. But the flip side to some of this is that we need to be incredibly cautious about the credibility of what we're proclaiming and over-promising on what we deliver. As I think Brian said earlier on, that, you know, cities are a human system. They are what in the system theory people call complex systems, right? which means that they tend to be rarely in equilibrium. They tend to move through kind of non-linear patterns and they tend to produce various bits and pieces through different kind of combinations that are always new. Cities are sites of novelty. Cities are where newness comes into the world. That means that you know, when we're talking about what a job means, when we're talking about what a basic family unit means, when we're thinking about how long people will live, when we're thinking about whether people work on a seven-day week or a five-day week or a three-day week, 
they are always producing new ways of living, new forms of generating value in terms of economy. And so because they are complex systems, they're characterized by certain kinds of emergence that you know, some of our ability to capture data is really kind of structured by a paradox. We know more and more about the short term, but in some ways as cities accelerate their change, we know more, less and less about the longer term. And so our ability to kind of map and model the everyday, the 24-hour cycle, the five-year cycle even, is growing exponentially. At the same time, as because cities are changing so rapidly, our ability to predict the next 30 years may well be diminishing. And we need to kind of think that paradox carefully. My kind of one-liner on this would be that someone who spent some time in city government in my life is that we need to be careful about always talking about solutions to problems that are universal because most of the problems of cities are frequently wicked problems that you have very often kind of least worse as much as just best or complete answers to. So if you think about mobility, that on the one hand, you want to make the city move as quickly as possible. But on the other hand, we know that we face a crisis of obesity and we'd like people particularly in the global north, but not only in the global north, we want them to get out of their cars and cycle and walk more. We want cities that are dense because it, densification promotes high levels of socialization, better utilization of transport systems. But often people want a big garden, and so they want to demand a big garden and urban sport. So frequently, you know, we need to kind of make visible some of the trade-offs that, that exist. Trade-offs between the different interests of the people, but also, more, more, in a way, more interestingly, how we actually provide an understanding of systems through new technologies and new forms of analysis but understanding that is simultaneously both generalizable across the world, but also bespoke to individual cities because it recognizes their histories. Cities kind of emerge from their own histories and we need to acknowledge the integrity of that, but also recognize their geographies that they sit. Shenzhen sits a few miles from Hong Kong in terms of what we're talking about. London sits within a particular network of the global economy. So we need to think through these histories and geographies in terms of their particularities in order to kind of maximize the opportunities and the generalizations that can come out of the real opportunities of technological change. And then Brian, from your standpoint, how should we frame expectations on what future city development can reasonably look like in the next decade? You know, as far as mobility is concerned, it's interesting, a lot of attention is in autonomous vehicles. And if you really look at what they're capable of and how long it's going to take, all of the automotive manufacturers within the past year have accelerated their projections of when they're bringing an autonomous vehicle to market. So all of them are telling us now that their vehicles will be coming to market within the next two years. When I talk about automation, I'm talking about level four, which is you can take your hands off the wheel, but you're present to take over the vehicle if need be. Now, how real will that be and how real will it be that folks can afford this and that we're really going to have streets roaming with autonomous vehicles. I mean, I don't think that's really going to be the type of impact we see. I think the real benefit comes in when we have shared autonomous vehicles, where we might have a fleet of vehicles that are shared. And I think that's no surprise why companies like Lyft and Uber, the, the TNCs, are actually looking at those as part of the fabric of what they're offering and their services. You know, autonomous vehicles on their own, I wouldn't say that is going to be a near-term impact. On the other hand, things like connected vehicle, which is an area that I've worked in for a couple decades now, where you have vehicles that get new information into their vehicle as they're driving, can actually broadcast information on their whereabouts through cellular probe, 
you know, that does help tremendously and can have uh, real impacts on how traffic moves. So that is something that we can reasonably communicate as something that can be expected in the near term. So it is always a weighing of what is hype and what is reality. And that's a lot of what we're navigating through. What are some of the challenges that municipalities should really give a long, hard look to before pressing forward with a city of the future transformation effort? The governance quality of cities across the world is extraordinarily variable, not only between countries, but within countries. And without going into chapter and verse about this, I think one can find examples of well-governed cities in most political and economic systems, and one can find some pretty grim examples. And that process of city governance demands what I described earlier is this acrobatic of trying to think through how you balance different demands on city hall very crudely. And I think what that means most straightforwardly is those demands come through geographically, that sense of the micro scale, how you actually judge the interests of a neighborhood against the interests of the city as a whole. One example we touched on earlier on, my own interest. We know that migration generally works well for the economics of cities. It tends to grow GDP of cities as in aggregate, but it also tends to increase productivity GDP per capita. But also we know that the economic benefits flow frequently at the level of the city as a whole, but some of the economic costs, the economists call the externalities, tend to be highly concentrated spatial. So concentrations of migration in some parts of the city mean that the benefits flow economically to the city as a whole, but the costs in terms of demands on welfare nets, getting into schools, getting into access to health services, overcrowding, some of the less happy consequences of flows of people, they tend to be concentrated on specific neighborhoods of the city. The municipal system has to balance the very local with the city as a whole, but it also it needs to balance you know, what is needed right now with what is needed in the medium term and the longer term, because you may need to think about the processes of housing demands that people face right here, right now, when they're either building a shack on the edge of the city or sleeping on the pavements of New York or London or Tokyo, for that matter. But at the same time, we need to build residential systems that are sustainable, ideally the dense, that allow some kind of integration between those that have and those that have less. And so that demands a kind of a longer-term vision and a shorter-term imperative. I think what that means is that the challenges that municipalities face and have to come are in this balancing act, trying to work at different scales of geography and time simultaneously, both multi-scalar, upwards and downwards, thinking about the relationship to the nation state of the city, but also thinking about the relationship in city hall and the small neighborhood, but also actually thinking about how they mitigate short-term intense demands over things like a right to have somewhere to live with the kind of medium-term imperatives of trying to plan the city rationally. And the longer-term demands to make it sustainable ecologically, to make carbon-neutral cities in the face of the climate crisis. But I would come back again to a general sense of the importance of governance being very often an important way of trying to answer the question of in whose image we are actually building cities anew, but how we balance those different demands, both in the geography of the city, but also in trying to measure its future, both in days, but also in decades. And Brian, what kind of challenges would you put forward that municipalities need to be mindful of when they're pressing forward with their City of the Future program? Two big ones that we're hearing is equity and the environment. And those are real concerns. You mentioned 
Michael, people sleeping on the streets and here in San Francisco, we're no exception to that. And it's a real challenge. So and when you're moving forward with trying to better the quality of life for everyone, how do you make sure that everyone is included in that progression? What's refreshing is that many of the cities that we do work with do have that as part of their mission. Smart Columbus in the Smart Cities Challenge, that was part of their offering was to make sure that there was equity in what they were bringing to the public. And I think another concern always is, is what can be done to improve the environment, to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Mm. Uh, a lot of that has to do with uh, active mobility, uh, getting people out of their vehicles and getting them onto bikes and walking and the like, but also reversing the trend of public transit use, which is unfortunately on the steady decline, which is a real challenge. Really what it comes down to is when we're talking about these new technological advances and improvements to cities is, is how can governance change their procurement rules? And we touched on that a bit, breaking out those out of those legacy ways of procuring solutions for cities, pulling money out of the coffers to do that, flipping that now to having entities bankroll these changes and letting them figure out a way to monetize those solutions. That is really innovative and that is very new. That's something that in my career is very unique. I think that if cities can break out of that mold a bit and allowing themselves to be a little bit more innovative in those ways to procure, I think that'll be a real big key. Thank you, Michael and Brian, for joining me today and talking about the future of cities. I've learned quite a lot. I really appreciate hearing from both of you. Thank you for your time today.